Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In January 1982, Marina Namat, then just 16 years old, was arrested, tortured, and sentenced to death for political crimes. She was a victim of the Islamic Revolution of 1979. She spent two years in Evin, a political prison in Tehran where she came very close to execution. Her memoir of her life, Prisoner of Tehran, has been published in 28 other countries and has been an international bestseller. This presentation was delivered as part of the 2015 Acton Lecture Series. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Hello, everyone. Thank you so, so much for having me here today. It is a pleasure and an honor to do this with the Acton Institute. Uh, I had the chance to be here a few years ago, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. So again, my gratitude goes to Acton and to every single one of you who made time uh, in your busy schedule. So I'm going to jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover, but I also ask you to think about your questions because at the end, there will be uh, a Q&A period. And I would love to hear from you because I have heard myself speak a million times and I'm sick and tired of my own voice. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess my bio was read, but, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a little summary of it uh, still. Uh, so, yes, I was born during the time of the Shah um, and the Shah, who was the king of Iran. Um, he didn't give the people political freedoms, but he gave people religious and personal freedoms. And uh, when I was living in Tehran, we lived right in the heart of downtown on Shah Avenue. And uh, my parents rented two apartments on top of a furniture store and a restaurant my dad was a ballroom dancing instructor. My mother was a hairdresser. So I grew up between the sounds of the cha-cha and the tango and women with really big poofy hair. <laughs> and when I looked on the street, I saw a normal street with a lot of cars, a lot of shops, beautiful skyscrapers, uh, people going about doing their shopping. And the, the majority of women that I saw on my street, they wore tight T-shirts and miniskirts. Because again, back then, Iran was governed by secular, not by religious laws. And we did have personal freedom, so a woman could dress the way she wanted. A woman could become a judge in my country. A woman could become the prime minister. But this is all before the 1979 revolution. We owned a cottage by the Caspian Sea, and that is where I spent my summers dancing and singing and being just happy. And the summer before the revolution in 1978, um, I used to wear a little bikini on the beach. I had a green one with white polka dots. And boys and girls would get together, we'd take our boom boxes to the beach. Now most of my audiences are high school students. And when I say boom box, they give me a really blank look. So I have to explain to them what that is. Big box, took 20 d size batteries, weighed 40 pounds. And we would take it to the beach and we would be dancing to the tunes of the Bee Gees. Every Thursday night, I watched the Donnie and Marie Osmond show and every Friday night, Little House on the Prairie dubbed into Farsi. I wanted to become a medical doctor. I had a 99% average in school and everybody told me that I could do whatever I wanted. 
and I believed that. So I had made, made all of my plans. I was going to go to med school, become a medical doctor, marry Donnie Osmond, and live happily ever after. <laughs> it didn't work out. So in 1978, after a beautiful uh, summer, my dad drove us back home, and in my beautiful, normal neighborhood, there was a tank parked at my door. I didn't know what was going on, but there was a revolution in progress. I asked a friend of mine, he was 18, I was 13, I thought he knew everything. I asked him what's going on, and he said, well, the Shah, the king, is a dictator, and I had to ask what's a dictator. And he said, well, if you speak against the government, you're going to be arrested, tortured, and maybe even executed. It was news to me. I watched A Little House on the Prairie, and I was in love with Donny Osmond. Of course, I didn't know any of this. But the people of Iran were on the streets. And I literally watched it from my window. Shah Avenue is a wide street in the heart of downtown. And we would watch these demonstrations that demanded freedom, and democracy. There's never been a revolution in the history of mankind where people get on the street and they say, we want a horrible dictatorship. No, people want freedom and democracy, but that's not necessarily what they get. Ayatollah Khomeini had promised the people freedom and democracy under the name of something called the Islamic Republic. I ask my friends, I ask my neighbors who went to these rallies. My family didn't because we were Christians. And all religious minorities were kind of worried about what they were hearing because, I mean, it was called, it had accepted the name of an Islamic revolution. And rightfully so, it worried us. I mean, anyway, even if they say it's a Buddhist revolution, you're not a Buddhist, you're going to ask, well, you know, how does that work? And I think all of us religious minorities were a little bit worried about that, even at that stage, before the success of the revolution. But I asked my friends. And they said, well, don't worry about it. The Ayatollah has promised the people freedom and democracy. That's exactly what we are going to get. People trusted the Ayatollah. People trusted the promises that he had made. But of course, he had no intention of keeping them. We didn't know that. Long story short, the revolution succeeded. The, uh, the Khomeini regime came, came into power. For about a year, it was great. Because all the old laws were out the window and the new laws were not written yet. It takes time to write a brand new constitution. So, so for about a year, anything went. You could do anything. You could say anything. You could read anything. Being a Marxist, for example, during the time of the show had been illegal. Now, I'm originally Russian. I had never, ever heard the words Marx and Lenin because it was illegal. And now suddenly, all that had been illegal was free for about a year. So we read, we discussed the left and the right and the middle, everybody. I mean, we were teenagers. I was still one of the younger ones. I was 13 years old. All the older kids, they had discussion groups going on at lunchtime. During the time of the show, we used to get together and talk about parties and boys. And now we were talking about social justice. Actually, it was quite educational. I learned a lot during, during that one very brief year about discussing things and being able to disagree with people without killing them. And that was good. And then the wave of mass arrests of young people began. Now, by now it's 1980, and the American hostage crisis is in full swing. And at the same time that the Americans were taken hostage, my generation, 80% of my schoolmates and I, from Anushiravani Dodgar High School in Tehran, we were on the streets protesting the Islamic regime. 
We were demanding equal rights for men and women because by then it had become obvious that men and women in this, in this new Islamic society are not going to have equal rights. By then, dancing had become illegal, singing had become illegal, holding your boyfriend's hand in public had become illegal. I mean, we weren't rocket scientists, but put yourselves in our shoes. We were not politically savvy. But if you tell a teenager that having fun is illegal, what do you think you're going to get? A revolution, basically. And we definitely tried that. So we were on the street and we were being shot at. But the world did not report that part of the story. The world did report the American hostages. But it didn't report about us. Most foreign journalists had been expelled. But, you know, I don't see, see that really as an excuse. Everything else was being reported. And then in 1981, we were getting arrested. The first one who was arrested from my school, from my class, actually, her name was Shahnoush Behzadi. She was 15. We studied together a lot. We were not good in math. So whenever we had math, we went through the, all the problems in the textbook together. We went to school really early. We sat down. We went through it. She was afraid of spiders. I was afraid of cockroaches. So if a spider showed up, I took care of it. If a cockroach showed up, she did. It worked. And then one day she wasn't there. Well, back then there was no Facebook, so unfortunately, you know, news didn't travel as fast. But we asked around, we called, we went to her neighborhood, and we discovered that she had been arrested at home the day before. Actually, they came for her brother, for her 18-year-old brother, who was a member of an anti-government organization, and they shot him during the arrest, and they took the rest of the family. We talked to each other. I mean, everybody was in shock. We talked to each other and said, come on, how bad can it get? I mean, she's 15. They're going to ask. It's, it's a misunderstanding. They're going to ask her a few questions. They're going to let her go, right? Wrong. They didn't. Every day there would be a desk empty. Every day somebody would be missing. And we all shrugged it off. We all said, how bad can it get? Well, really bad. They came for me on January 15, 1982. I was about to take a bath. 9, 10 o'clock at night, the doorbell rang. My mother called my name. I opened the bathroom door. There are two really big guns pointed in my face. People have asked me, were you scared? No, I was not. And that's not because I'm brave. I'm afraid of cockroaches, remember? No. I entered a state of shock. A state of shock is like body armor. It's a gift from God. It goes on automatically and it clicks. And what it, when it clicks... You're in. You don't feel. I was looking at my mom and dad, and they were crying, and I was thinking, why are you crying? No big deal. I'm just getting arrested. It just didn't sink in. They put, the guards put me in a car. They drove me north to Evin Prison, which is completely operational as we speak. There are political dissidents today behind those walls. Today, there are religious minorities behind those walls. So this is not really history, this is current affairs. So they took me in blindfolded on arrival, hallway after hallway after hallway. Eventually I was told to sit down, I waited, eventually somebody called my name, and I was taken into a room, a door closed behind me, the guy said, sit, I did, I couldn't see him, but I could hear him. He asked me, have you attended protest rallies against the government? I said, yeah. I had nothing to hide, I was 16 and everybody knew I attended protest rallies. My friends knew, the principal knew, 
Everybody knew what was the point of hiding. I was not wearing a ski mask on the streets of Tehran when I protested. Yeah, I attended protest rallies. He asked me, have you written articles against the government? I said, yeah, in my school newspaper. It was a piece of cardboard, really. We wrote stuff on it, and we just scotch-taped it to a wall in school every day. And then the Revolutionary Guard teacher, who was there to brainwash us, she was appointed by the new regime, would tear it into tiny little pieces. It was a cat-and-mouse game between us and the new principal. And obviously, we lost. So yes, I have written articles against the government. Where's Shahzad? Shahzad is a girl's name I had met this young woman once. She was a friend of a friend. She wanted me to join her organization. They were Marxists. By then, I had figured out that Catholic and Marxists, mm, they don't exactly go together. I respected them. They were good, intelligent people. They also, like me, believed in equal rights. Free, you know, at least that's what they were saying. So you know, they were nice people. We were friends. That's fine. So I met this young woman once. Apparently, she was being watched, and she had escaped. I was caught. Where Shahzad? I don't know. And it was the absolute truth. If I knew, I would have told. I had no reason not to. So they took me to another room. They took off my blindfold. I was in a small room with two men, Ali and Hamid. They asked me again, where's Shahzad? I don't know. So they handcuffed me. When they handcuffed me, they saw that my hands, I, I was very small back then, I was like 90 pounds. They saw that my hands are going to slide out of the cuffs. So they put both of my wrists into one cuff, and as it clicked, my right wrist cracked. And the torture had not even begun. At that point, I screamed my head off. At that point, I really, really wanted to go home. But that was not an option. They tied me to the bare wooden bed. I was lying down on my stomach. They took off my socks and my shoes. I had Puma running shoes, white with red stripes on them. I had paid a fortune for them. Now, it's funny because I was 16. At that, at that point, when they tied me up with a broken wrist, I was worried about my shoes. You know, that goes to tell you how naive I was. I just shake my head when I think about it. They're like, oh, stupid girl. So they lashed the soles of my feet with a length of cable. Now, with cable, I mean industrial. An inch thick is heavy rubber. This is the most common method of torture in the Middle East. Why? Because our nerve ends are in our feet. And with every strike of the lash, your nervous system explodes and is magically put back together, and you're wide awake for the next. You think you're going to die. You think you're going to pass out. You don't. I started counting. I think I got to seven, eight, or nine, something below 10. And I forgot how to count. I started saying Hail Marys, you know, Catholics and Hail Marys. We love our Hail Marys. I forgot the words to it. And I don't, I cannot say Hail, Hail Marys in my sleep. I, can, I will forget my name. I will not forget how to say Hail Mary. So I forgot. I was drowning in pain. And it was terrifying. Well, the pain was terrifying. But then thinking about it, I realized that. What was terrifying was that I realized at that point what torture is, what it does. And I would have done anything, and I take it seriously, anything to stop it. If the devil appeared and said to me, Marina, sell me your soul, and I will get you back home to your uh, mother, I would have sold my soul with whipped cream and a cherry on top. No questions asked. And that is scary. Now, I just want to mention this because it is important. Torture is not designed to kill you physically. 
because there are much more economical, easy ways to kill people. They will put you in front of a firing squad. They will hang you. They will throw you in a hole and put dirt on you. Why would they go through the hard work of torture? They tell you, they, by they, I mean those, all of those who use torture will tell you it is to get information. They lie. Torture is not to get information. I would have confessed I was Jesus Christ. They gave me documents to sign. I signed everything. I didn't read them. I don't know what I signed. So torture is not to get information. What is it for? Torture is designed to kill the human soul. When they succeed, they stop. They don't succeed. Then they will execute you. This is why torture is a crime against humanity. This is why torture is so terribly wrong. So they beat me. Eventually, they stopped. They made me sit up. I looked at my feet, and I laughed out loud. It was funny. I looked like Bugs Bunny. My feet looked like overgrown party balloons with toes on them, color indigo blue. I didn't know that the human body does that. So they beat you to that point. Then they make you walk. They beat you. They make you walk. They beat you. They make you walk. And walking on those feet at that stage is not easy. Why? Why stagger? Because if they keep beating you, your skin would break and you would die from bleeding and infection. It is not to kill you physically. It is to kill your soul. And they want to prolong your suffering as much as is humanly possible. That's the purpose. So they, you know, I, I got the death sentence. Long story short, I got the death sentence. Very easy to get in even, even today. Iran today still has the highest number of executions per capita, and it has been rising under the reformist government for the past two years. So I was given a death sentence. It was reduced to life in prison. I was sent to the cell block, an L-shaped hallway, hallway with cells on either side. In a cell that during the time of the show, there were five people, now, now there were 70. When we slept at night, we slept like sardines. No space between us at all. The first night I woke at 2 a.m., I needed to go to the bathroom. I got up in my spot. I looked around. I thought, oh, oh, I can't go. Because if I wanted to go, I would have had to step on people. And they were my friends. And they were bloody and swollen. I was not going to walk on them. I knew at dawn there's a call for prayer and we have to go to the bathroom to get ready for the prayer. And of course, the dawn came, call for prayer came, and I was number 302 in the bathroom line. So good luck. As we are standing, there are names being announced over the loudspeaker. So and so and so and so come to the office. Those who are called would be taken for interrogation, torture, or execution, and you didn't know which one. So they call you, you go, don't make a fuss. You make a fuss, they will come and shoot you right here. Go. Go and hope for the best. The rest of us, we stay. And what do we do? Did we talk about social justice? No, we didn't. That didn't end well. We talked about everything that made us human. My humanity had never mattered so much. When you are in absolute darkness, there's one thing left. And that is a memory of love. We thought about the people who loved us and the fact that we loved them, despite the evidence that showed that nobody loved us, nobody cared about us. We had to die. 
But we believed that there were our families out there. We believed that they would come to our rescue. They didn't, but we believed it. And we shared of memory, uh, our memories of family reunions, New Year celebrations, Donia Mary Osmond, bikinis, you know, all those good things, just so that we created something that resembled hope. And that hope kept us alive. Those of us who survived, that is what kept us alive. My friends in my we were hungry. We had very little food. They gave us dry flatbread and some dates, basically a little bit of watery soup here and there. But we would save our rations. And when it was someone's birthday, if we would make a birthday cake, birthday cake, made of dry bread and dates. And we would have an imaginary candle and we would sing happy birthday. That is what kept me alive. It was the love and the goodness of people, my cellmates, also teenagers, who were hungry, who had been beaten to a pulp, but yet had it in them to give. And what they gave me on every birthday party that I, celeb birthday party, that I celebrated in Evin Prison, celebrated, weird, weird words, they are the best birthdays I have ever had. They cannot be replicated because that is the height of human goodness in the height of evil. And that, that is, that love is why I stand here. My friend Shahnoush, you remember I told you that she was arrested. She was executed one month later before I was even arrested. She's buried in a mass grave. We don't know where. She died and I'm here. And that's not fair, but I owe it to her to make sure that her name is mentioned over and over again because she was a good kid. There was another form of torture. Sometimes we were called at midnight and we were returned to the cell block at 5 a.m. No visible torture signs. I mean, the girls, you know. And if you knew that girl to whom this happened, you would go to her and you would say, hey, where, where were you last night? And she would say, oh, nothing. They just took me for interrogation. Nothing happened. Yeah, right. That doesn't happen around here. They called me for interrogation about six months after my arrest. My interrogator, Ali Wazir, he looked at me in the eye. He took off my blindfold and looked at me. And he said, well, you had a death sentence. I reduced it to life in prison. You are going to be here forever and nobody cares. You are going to become my wife or I will arrest your parents and your boyfriend. Do you understand? I understood. All that time I had hoped that I will be released and that I'll go home. If the, he arrested my parents, I wouldn't have a home to go back to. I said, fine, I'll do it. And he forced me to convert to Islam. I did it. I was 17. I was being raped over and over again under the name of marriage, and it was absolutely legal. I couldn't even protest. This man took me on short leaves of absence to visit his family, and I expected his mom to be the evil mother from Cinderella and torment me more. And this little woman opened uh, her kitchen to me. She took me in her kitchen. All the food in her fridge landed on the table in front of me, and she said, I beg you, eat. She was kind. She was generous. She was nicer than my own mother. And I looked at her, and I thought, what is wrong with you? You're supposed to be evil. Come on, make it easy for me. Make, me, make it easy for me to hate you. And she wouldn't do that. 
She took care of me to the point that I got uncomfortable. And she very casually one day told me that my torturer husband had been a political prisoner in Evin for three years during the time of the Shah and had been tortured much more than I had been. And my house of cards collapsed. Up to that point, I divided the world into good and evil, good on one side, evil on the other, with, with a very clear line in between. You were either good or evil. I was good, he was evil. I was the victim, he was the torturer. Doesn't take a rocket scientist, right? But now I was told that he had been a victim just like me. And I didn't like the words, just like me. Because I believe that victimhood is a perpetual stage. Once you're a victim, you're always a victim, you're the good guy. Well, not really. Tables turned. The revolution happened. Somebody put a length of cable in his hand and said, go for it. Go get your justice, whatever you want to call it. You know, you know how it goes. And he did. He went after his enemies of state, religion, whatever you want to call it. The people he hated. And he justified horrific violence against those people because they were the other, and I was one of the other. And here we were. And I knew, I still know, tables will turn again, and one day I will get this call. One day I will get the call from Iran, and somebody will say, hey, Marina, mm, Iran is really good now. We had another revolution, and we really need a minister of justice. Do you want the job? I mean, you suffered, your friends, you know, got killed and, you know, you have worked so hard and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you want the job? You must be hateful. You must be angry. Go get them. And then they will hand me a length of cable. And when I was in solitary confinement in Evian prison, which was a very long time, I thought about this. And I thought about that length of cable that will be offered to me. What would I say to that? I realized they can, you know, in, in Evin, they even changed my name. I realized they can take away your family, your name, your religion, your dignity. But there is one thing they can't take away, and that is who you really are, which has nothing to do really with the above, but it has to do with your humanity. When I have the opportunity for revenge, that I might choose to call justice, I mean, you know, what will I do? Will the victim again, again, and again become the torturer or no? Will the victim take a step back and say, uh-uh, I'm a survivor. I will not do that because I'm not like that at all. And I think for me that day, in a way, not that I have got that phone call, but I will one day, but kind of has arrived. Because now that I live in Canada and I have freedom, I can choose to hate. And I do not do that. They released me after two years, two months, 12 days in prison. My torturer husband was assassinated by a rival faction before, about six months before my release, and his family did their best to get me out. They bribed. I don't know what they did. They got me out. So 15 months after I married him, two years, two months, 12 days after my arrest, I went home. It was March 26, 1984. It was a rainy day. I went home, took a shower, sat at the dinner table with my parents, and they talked. 
about the weather. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Because if we acknowledge that there is an atrocity being committed, somebody will ask us, well, if you knew about it, why didn't you do something? And nobody wants to be asked that question. And by doing something, I don't mean that I expected my parents to pick up guns and go shoot the living daylight out of people. No. Because then I would be them. And I'm not. I'm really not. When I was in solitary confinement, again, I had a lot of time to think. And it's amazing. In solitary, every day is 3,000 years. The sun comes up. It never goes down. And then the night comes and it never ends. And you have lots of time on your hands. So I would have conversations with God. I mean, who else, right? It made sense. I would loudly, like, you know, like as if God was a person. I still have that habit today. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It freaks out my husband. Anyhow, I would have this, it, it calms me. It really, I find it very calming. When I'm scared, I do that. And not, not that there was a burning bush or anything. Don't get me wrong. It was all in my own head. So anyhow, I would say, hey, God, how are you doing? And I would, of course, imagine not that God, would, there would be a booming voice or anything. No, 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 no. But, you know, on the other end, God would say, hey, Marina, how's it going? And I would say, well, God, you know what? I, if I, you're all seeing. I mean, look around you. It's not going that great. And then God would say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then I would, you know, at, at that point, I would stop. And I would say to myself, wait a second. If God was some thing sitting on his throne in heaven, I had every right to be mad at him. Every right. It's so easy to be mad at God, right? It's all God's fault. He created this after all. But then I realized that, wait a second, I'm a Christian. Jesus walked here. He was wrongfully arrested. He was wrongfully tortured. And guess what? He was executed for it. So I have nothing to complain about, really, because what happened to him was pretty bad. And at any point in time, even though my sentence was reduced to life in prison, in even it doesn't matter what your sentence says. You can have five years in prison. They could kill you when they don't like you. So, I, you know, one of the thoughts that always went in my head was, okay, God, what do you think is the best way to die? I mean, do you think being shot is better, being hanged is better, being stoned is better, being crucified? You know, that's another way to go. What do you think? And then I would imagine God saying, you know what, Marina, don't go for crucifixion because that one is really, really bad. And I trusted that. I wear a cross around my neck. It never, ever comes off. I have a heart here. I have a dove and I have a cross. It's here to stay. Because every single one of these images, it describes my faith and who I am. Christ was in that cell with me. I testify to that. This cross that I hang here is not something pretty. 
This is a tool of torture. Let's not forget that. And I found that, you know what, this world is not really a complicated place. We pretend it is. It's actually really straightforward and simple. And this cross around my neck reminds me of that simple answer. Why did he die? We always ask to ask why. God has given us the ability to ask why. Why did he die? Because he loved. Not because he hated. And that is, that has been my beacon in any situation. You know, sometimes you, people write books and essays and this and that, and they try to analyze this and that. But all I ask myself is, why? And what do I do considering that I have a cross hanging around my neck? Today, I work with refugees. I didn't exactly choose it. It was basically thrown at me. One day, the priest at my church, Our Lady of Grace and Order, came to me, Father Tim Hanley, and he said, Marina, we are, this was, I don't know, like four or five years ago. He said, Marina, I need you because I want to start a refugee committee, and there is nobody that I can trust with getting it off the ground. You can do it. I need a fundraiser. I need this and this, that. And we are going to the Archdiocese of Toronto or um, the Office of Refugee for, uh, Arch, uh, for the Archdiocese of Toronto. It had begun working and it was trying to bring refugees to Canada from the Iraq war at the time. And our Cardinal Collins wanted churches to sponsor these refugees. So we have a sponsorship program. We can actually raise money and bring refugees who are in dire need after they go through all the government channels and they are interviewed and they are okayed. We pay all of their expenses for a year, one year, and we help them integrate into the Canadian society. We do all the work. And we started this from, from scratch. And then our family for the first family, Christians from Iraq, Chaldeans actually, they came and the experience was absolutely fantastic. It was just wonderful. After six months, they had jobs, they had learned English, they had a beautiful place to live. I mean, they were happy, they were safe. And then the family after that was a Muslim family who had been stranded. They were originally from Iraq, but they had been stranded in Libya of all places. We helped them. Same story with them. Amazing people, really grateful. They, you know, just a few days ago, their one year is ending right now. So the one year that we take care of them. And I got an email from the husband, just one line. It said, Marina, you cannot imagine all the work that you did for us. We are grateful. And we will make you proud. And now our third family, a Christian family coming from Iran, stranded in Lebanon, they are coming. And the next family after that, they are from the Ivory Coast. So I work with these refugees. I spent the last week finding a fridge, a refrigerator for the family who are going to come in about two weeks because the apartment we have for them doesn't have a fridge. I mean, these kind of challenges. We will pick them up at the airport. We are furnishing their place. And by doing this, you know, refugees, most of them, I'm not saying all of them, are the most vulnerable people. 
And by working with them, every step that I take with them, no matter what their religion is, I'm reminded of what Christ did when he was on this planet. Refugees are a people. They have various kinds of religions. Nowadays, most of them are Muslim, not all, but they are people. Are there rapists among them? You bet there are. Are there sociopaths among them? You bet there are. Are there criminals between them? You bet there are. Of course, there are people. There are criminals and rapists and terrorists and sociopaths in any population. But does that mean that all refugees are terrorists? No. I have been working with them. Nobody, none of them, other people have tried to kill me, but none of them. Yes, is, there, is it possible that those who work with refugees, and I mean the majority of my friends, one of them was in Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. He just returned with horror, heartbreaking stories to tell. Do bad things happen? Of course. But the majority of things that happen are actually good things. Now, as I go about with my life advocating against torture for refugees, for acceptance, for kindness, for forgiveness, for religious freedom, I am reminded of the cross and what it means. That cross has given me, even though I don't deserve it, don't get me wrong, I don't deserve it. I broke under torture. I was ready to sell my soul to devil, to the devil. Don't, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm nothing. In Evin, I was reduced to dust and I'm resurrected. I'm standing here, I'm bearing witness, not because I deserve it, because this is somebody else's mission, really. And he just said, hey, you, get up and let's do this. And I got up. Not that it's easy, not that it's happy, not that I enjoy every minute of it. I sometimes get nauseated. It's so hard, it's so devastating. But as a witness, you bear witness. You bear witness to what? And, and that's the question. You bear witness to what? To love. Fear is a dangerous human emotion. It's sometimes justified. Okay, you see a car coming at you, you better be afraid and you better run. But, but, we cannot allow fear, which usually leads to hatred, to dictate to us as Christians who we are and how we walk in planet, how we walk this planet over my dead body. They tried to turn me into a hateful individual in prison. They failed. This is the purpose of terrorists. They feed on hate. They feed on fear. The moment they instill those qualities in the heart of a Christian, who do you think is winning? The devil or Christ? I mean, seriously, this doesn't take a rocket scientist. It really doesn't because I'm definitely no rocket scientist. Definitely. I can hardly add two and two together, you know. So those are the questions. The world is not such a complicated place after all. 
a little bit of love, a birthday cake made with dry bread and dates has told me enough about this world that I ever need to know. So, okay, on time. I thank you so, so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know I threw a lot of stuff at you. It's a lot to digest, I know. And you have to think about it. You have to analyze it in your head and make a decision where you stand. And don't forget, we are trying to get through the eye of a needle. Are you coming with me? You have to really squeeze thin. It's not fun. But are you coming? Once you choose to come and walk this path, your life is going to be difficult. But one thing I can say for sure, your life is going to be a tremendously happy one. That I can guarantee. And no matter what they do to you, yeah, they can hurt you. They can hurt me. They have. But don't I stand on my feet? They are tortured feet, but they are feet and they still work. Any question is welcome. I will try to answer every question as briefly as I can. So at the end, if you ask a question, you're not you know, exactly sure if we discussed it enough, please write to me on Facebook and I will get into more detail for you. Thank you. Let's thank Marina first. Thank you. So we, 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 will, we have about 20 minutes, so we actually have uh, till about quarter after. So raise your hand. Uh, and we, we will ask as many as we can. Thank you very much, Marina. This you may have heard a hundred or a thousand times, but here I am a few thousand miles away from most religious persecution, and my inclination in daily life is to confront things that are in front of me and be actively opposing them. It's, it's hard for me to understand how to actively oppose something that's it doesn't touch my daily life. And then, by the way, I'm trying to earn grocery money, and I'm trying to influence and do the right things in my immediate circle. So what do you suggest for increasing my awareness or effectiveness in helping the world at large fight this kind of persecution? You know, I have to say I'm a doer. Uh, I like to do things. So I always tell high school students who are the largest of my audiences, really, uh, that we don't need, if you live here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you don't need to move to Syria or to Iraq or to Iran and do something. I mean, first of all, that's impossible. There's so much violence there. There's so much hatred. There's so much going on that you're just going to get killed or kidnapped or we are going to watch your head being chopped off on television. That's a really bad idea right now. Maybe the day will come to go and do something. So what I say is each one of us creates ripple effects and these ripple effects spread. If where we live in our own communities, we remain tolerant of others who are different from us, who have different religions, who have different ways of life. As long as they are not hurting others, they are not really causing serious damage. If you're tolerant of other people, we are doing our job. We don't need to move to a part of the planet that we know basically nothing about 
Because if we do that, we'll probably cause more damage than anything. I know the, the Midis, I grew up there. I understand it. If I go there, I won't because right now they will chop my head off. But we usually cause more damage than do good. I would stay right here. Now, I live in Canada, so my right here is in Canada. But right here, we have enough problems that need attention on various levels. And again, being who I am, one of those problems is the problem of refugees. I've had long conversations with my refugee family who are Muslim. And it takes a lot of effort to persuade them that certain practices that we have in, here in the West are not that bad after all, and everybody benefits from them. Because these people, they have always lived in those communities and they have never seen how things might work. And then when they come here, there are fear mongers among us living. Like, and we have a new sex education program in Canada, and I mean, don't, don't even get me started. But, you know, it has terrified some people. So, I mean, there's so much cultural, so many cultural religious issues that we have even right here. And with the refugees coming, I would re I, I have heard that the U.S. government is refraining from accepting more refugees. In Canada, we are taking 25,000 by the end of the year. And they are all going to get screened. And we are going to do our due diligence. But then these people who mostly come from very Islamic background, and they don't know this way of life, they need somebody to assure them to walk with them, to be kind to them, to befriend them, and don't create a sense of otherness. That is where I'm standing, the best thing we can do for the world, because the world has become a very small place. What is your take on the recent U.S. agreement with Iran? And then also speak a little bit to opening relations with Cuba. Oh, uh, yeah, that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I try to stay brief because I have written extensively about this in form, form of art. I, I wrote a, an open letter to President Obama. It is online. Please go find it. I mean, it also says it all. So just type in Marina Nemat, open letter, President Obama. It will come up. I wrote this months ago before the actual agreement was signed, the nuclear agreement. Iran is a um, killing machine. The mess in Syria, actually, that is happening right now is not really absolutely and entirely, well, not at all, absolutely and entirely, the fault of Syrians. In Syria, you have Saudi Arabia, you have Russia, and you have the Iranians really fighting each other and wanting to take over that country through their own people. That's what's happened. This is why, really, Syria is in civil war. So Iran is one of the main reasons why there are so many innocent people, not only in Iran, but all over the Middle East are dying. It is illogical to end the sanctions against Iran because that will release $150 billion. I don't even know how many zeros that has. $150 billion, which I just know is a lot of money, into a killing machine. How can we put money into a killing machine and hope for a positive outcome is beyond me. 
Yes, the new president of Iran looks very nice compared to the previous one. I mean, Ahmadinejad is, whoa, you know, you listened to him for two minutes. You were like, okay, I'm just taking a step back, you know. But this one, he's presentable and he's always very clean and neat and groomed and, you know, all of that. And he has very positive language. But make no mistake, this is a game. They are putting on this. Look at, you know, don't listen to what they say. Look at what they do. The number of executions has increased in the past two years that Rouhani has come into power. That is very clear. Do not give $150 billion to a killing machine because then you might kiss Syria and the rest of the Middle East and there are a lot of other things actually. Goodbye. Um. Um, I think I speak for all of us here. One quick comment. Um, and I, I thank God for your ministry. I really do. Thank you. Uh, I, I believe there are four, correct me if I'm wrong, four American citizens that are being held uh, prisoner hostage in Iran currently, I believe. In, I think there prison. are four. Could you give us some, I'm most afraid to ask this question, but can you give us some idea of the conditions under which these people mm-hmm. uh, are housed and operated? Do they have any legal counsel? Are they treated, quote unquote, better? No. No, they have nothing. I mean, I just gave you an outlook. You know, my, my good part of my talk was about the condition these people are in, right? So they are in really bad conditions. Now, I have to tell you, they usually, not always, not always, they usually treat the foreigners better. Why? Because they think, okay, you know, because, because basically the foreigners are hostages and they, they are hoping that they, they can trade them and get something back. So they usually keep them under better conditions usually, not always, they don't use physical torture. They just use psychological torture. It doesn't really leave any marks on your body. Um, So the, the thing is that being in prison in Iran is a terrifying thing. And the conditions are not that great, if not horrible. So it is a good idea to get them out. The sooner, the better. And I'm surprised that they aren't already out because with the nuclear negotiation, I mean, it's very easy to say, okay, we'll do this, but you have to give our people back. Uh, You know, now again, I'm speaking here, I'm I'm not even a US citizen, so please forgive me, but I actually negotiated, helped, helped negotiate the release of a Canadian Iranian. So I'm not entirely an idiot on this matter. And actually the government that helped me negotiate that was the government of Italy. Because the wife of the man, this Canadian Iranian who was in prison for like eight years and his brother was killed, uh, they were both in prison. Terrible, terrible situation. The wife is a Canadian Italian. So we went to Italy together and I spoke with an official within the Italian uh, government, uh, Mario Mauro. Wonderful man. Then he became minister of defense. Now he's in the Senate in Italy. A good friend. And they went in and they negotiated it. Not the Canadians. They were useless, I have to say. And I said this to the face, in the face of our previous justice minister. I said it to his face. You're useless. But the Italians negotiated it. They went in. They, ha- they do have an embassy in Tehran. They sent people and then negotiated the release. And he came home. I was there at the airport to receive him. It's doable. I have just one question. The justice system in Iran 
Is that only a political faction? Are well, there judges? Are there, <laughs> have, has anybody recourse through a justice system? The justice system in Iran is really an injustice system. So you have to keep that in mind. So there is no judge. There are judges, but they are Sharia judges. So basically, if you commit adultery, heaven forbid, let's say if I commit adultery, that sounds better. Okay, does it? Mm. If, <laughs> if I commit adultery and somebody sends me in front of the judge, the judge would most probably, there have been many cases, condemn me to be stoned to death. And according to the Iranian system that is governed by Sharia law, religious law, that's absolutely just. What's wrong with you? A friend of mine wanted divorce in Iran. She went to a judge because her husband beat her. And this woman has a PhD in genetics. Her husband beat her. So she goes to the judge. She lives in Iran. She's an Iranian citizen. And the judge says, well, if you behave better, your husband doesn't have to beat you. And that's absolutely, in, uh, under Iranian law, that's absolutely just. There are judges, but there are Sharia judges. And the judiciary in Iran is not at all independent. It's completely under the reign of supreme leader, who is Ayatollah Khamenei. So there is no justice. Exactly. It's called injustice. Yeah. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, Sharia law. Are you talking about Sharia law when you talk about an Iranian legal system? Yes, is it is completely based on Sharia law. How, how, how can we here then uh, understand that? Or how can we accept what's going on with all the protests uh, in, in this country that seem to be heading in the direction of, of Sharia law here? For instance, our people in Hollywood, don't they understand if we have Sharia law here, there won't be any Hollywood? You cannot have Sharia law here. We had the same problem in Canada. We fought it and we got it off the table. So I really recommend, you know, because just one thing, you know, enough probably to know about Sharia law. You don't need to become a Sharia law scientist. Okay, so just enough. Under Sharia law, a woman has half the rights of a man. So the testimony of a woman is worth half of a man. A woman gets half the inheritance of a man, period. So a law that values half of the society, half of the rest, with half the rights, we can't have that at all. Now, Islam is going through its middle ages. I pray for all Muslims. I pray that they find their way through this very, very difficult time which is very testing. I have Muslims friends who are good people and they do not believe in Sharia law. They believe, okay, that's historical. I mean, just forget about it. You know, let's just love each other and be nice to each other. Yeah, there are violent passages in the Quran. You know, okay, okay. You know, let's just put those aside. They're historical. They're Muslims. They have gotten through that Middle Ages mentality. But we do not have to submit Again, no, this is not any form of hate. You know, all Muslims do not believe in Sharia law. They just don't. There are a bunch of po power-thirsty sociopath Muslims who just want power and money and influence, and they are promoting that. So let's just be clear, differentiate between the two, understand what Sharia law is and what it does, and just stand against it. It doesn't work here. Okay, yes. Uh, Jerry Dykstra, I work with Open Doors, uh, Ministry of the Persecuted Church. Um, 
I hear that many young people, especially college students in Iran, are very dissatisfied with Islam. Yes. And many of them uh, are open to Christianity. In fact, many are coming to Christ uh, through uh, the internet, social media, satellite t TV. Is, is that true? Uh, to a certain degree. I mean, we don't have a census from Iran. I cannot go walk the streets of Tehran and ask people openly, hey, what do you believe in? <laughs> That's not going to work out. Yes, I know there are Christian converts in Iran. How many? We have no idea. I speak with a lot of Iranians. Some of them just arrive in Canada. And uh, many of them are still Muslim, but they don't believe in the Sharia Allah and the crazy sociopathic kind of practicing Islam. But they are just normal people. And then uh, there are those who are converts, like the family that we are bringing, they are arriving two, three weeks in Canada. They are Christian converts. And this is why they couldn't even stay. They had to escape because they were discovered. So they have spent two years in Lebanon. But then there are also those who just don't want to have anything to do with religion anymore. Because of what they have seen in Iran and what has been done in the name of God, they just have developed a hatred toward any kind of religion. And that's also an understandable outcome of such circumstances. Uh, I wouldn't be sitting here concerning myself with that. You know, I mean, think about it by all means. If you want to write scholarly papers about that, by all means, go, go, go ahead. But like right now, I have a couple of Iranian, uh, two Iranian girls in their 20s who were each in prison for four or five years. And um, to be honest, I don't think they have any religion. At least because I, I never ask people what their religion is. But, you know, our conversations, it doesn't seem like they do. And they are in danger of being arrested again. So I'm trying my best to help them. They... One of their way was to get a student visa and like come to Canada or the U.S., but the U.S. has denied them entry. So now I'm trying to get them an acceptance from a university in Canada so that I, at least we can get them safe and then decide what we are going to do. What I would really concern myself with is to actually saving lives. That is what I compel you to do, to put pressure on your government and to ask for tools to be available to citizens like it is in Canada, like we have in Canada, to actually get these individuals, bring them to a safe place, and just be good to them. Yes. I work with uh, veterans that uh, have been yeah. in the war. Yeah. And uh, they talk about a traumatic experience. I think what you've shared is a much more concentrated and prolonged traumatic experience. I think you've hinted or you've given some uh, clarity as to, you know, how you moved beyond that. <clears throat> but I, I found that very poignant when you were talking about you came home and you talked about the weather with your parents. And I understand. I understand. I mean, that's a lot of what the veterans say, too. Anyway, my question is, was there some particular thing or some particular element that allowed you to start being able to integrate this experience? I understand what you speak about in terms of your faith, that it was central to you. Was there something else that also helped you to integrate this? Well, you know, a, a big part of it was faith. Another part of it was my family. Uh, and then the other part was Canada. Canada took me in when I had nowhere to go. They just said, come on over, we'll help you out. 
This was in 1991, and we went to Canada, and we had a safe place. Now, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder is... It's never completely gone. It's not like a cold or flu that you get and you recumber from. It's always with you. Uh, And I actually work with a lot of PTSD sufferers. And uh, I I teach them memoir writing. So what it is, is that you have to learn to manage the condition. Now, in every individual, that management differs. Some people definitely need medication. Some people don't. Some people need therapy. Some people need it more than the the rest. Some people find writing helpful. Some people find uh, art helpful. I mean, there are so many tools from art therapy to various, very strong. Actually, I have the papers about one new drug right now in my suitcase that I was given when I was in Silicon Valley. And I met someone who also suffers from PTSD. So, I mean, there are all these various tools that you can manage for PTSD and certain faith is one of them. Some people go through hypnosis, you know, and all of that. So it is a very individual thing, what works for you. We see that some PTSD sufferers actually become um, very angry and very hateful. But a lot of times you need to work through all of those negative emotions, right? So you have to find a way that allows you to work those out. You know, again, every case is different. So I would be happy to like sit down with anyone. I mean, I've done it numerous times. And I'm not a therapist or anything, but at least I, ca- I can give some advice. But I mean, here in the United States, I, I, I hope there are ways available for these people to seek help. Yes. Okay. In reading your book, some of your family experiences, parents, and then all traumatic experience, what, what burned you or got, got you the desire to read the book? Because you had to share many hurtful experiences in the book, and yet it was such a popular one. So what, what drove you to, to write? To write. Uh, well, um, I have, you know, in PTSD, actually, I don't know how much you know, but what happens is that for many years, you don't, ha- you don't show any symptoms. So, you know, you come out of that, whether it's war zone or political prison or Syrian refugee camp, okay, you come out and you get here, like you, first you need to get to a safe place. You get to a safe place and you look around and you're like, oh, I'm okay. Okay, let's now just move on. And that's what your family wants you to do. That's what your society tells you to do. And you seem okay. I mean, you know, you're okay. You just go on. Just, you know, people have problems. I have problems. We just go on. And that's exactly what I did. I got married. I had a family. My neighbors all said that I was the most normal looking person they had ever met. I had a job. I was good at my job, you know, all of that. And then one day I had something happen while my mother died and something that my father said to me. Uh, He looked at me after my mother's funeral and he said, Marina, your mother forgave you before she died. I opened my mouth to say, what do you mean? He meant your mother forgave you for being a stupid person and going to prison and making all of us suffer. I knew that's what he meant. But I opened my mouth because I needed to actually hear it. And what came out was a horrific scream. So I had my very first psychotic episode. It was just this never-ending scream that didn't allow me to breathe. So I collapsed, you know. And that was when I actually, this, this was in 2000. I was released in 1984. 16 years after my release, I had my first psychotic episode. And that was when I, when I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, uh-oh, what the hell was that? I mean, I didn't recognize that person who screamed like that. I don't do that. It was as if, you know, my body was taken over by something else. And that was when I was hoping that my brother, you know, my husband, you know, the rest of the family who were there, 100 people at the funeral, somebody would give me a phone call and say, hey, Marina, how are you doing? What was that? Not a phone call. Everybody was still sweeping it under the rug. Everybody knew what was going on, sweeping it. 
And then my, because all my life I have loved, loved literature, I thought, you know what? I'm going to get this down because I realized that if I just carry this in my chest, it's going to kill me. And then I started taking creative writing classes. And then my classmates were very receptive. They were encouraging. They were receptive. And eventually I had a manuscript. And the manuscript remained in the drawer. But after a while, I actually started feeling worse. And I realized that as long as secrets remain secrets, I'm going to be a prisoner of them. And that was when I actually went public. So it was a long process. The day that my mother died to when I published the book was seven years. But it is a process. PTSD needs to be processed. It cannot be cured at all, and you cannot get rid of it, ever. Ladies and gentlemen, would you join me in thanking Marina Namat for a wonderful lecture. Thank you, Marina.